in a sense, we come to a division in the book because chapter 4 tells us about the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king. Now, by way of review, let me remind you that chapter 1 tells us how the Jewish people went into Babylonian captivity. That means the Babylonian Empire conquered Judah and captured their people. Nebuchadnezzar chooses some of the young Jewish men to be trained as magicians, advisors to the king, also known as Chaldeans. And you will remember that Daniel refused to eat the king's food, go on the diet that the king required, and he also refused to drink the, queen, uh, the king's wine because that was uh, offered to pagan deities. And Daniel still looked better than all the other people who were trained. And so Daniel's God proves to be greater than the Babylonian God. Then chapter 2, we have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. And his wise men, his pagan advisors, cannot interpret the dream. But Daniel interprets the dream, proving that the God of Israel is wiser than the God of Babylon. And then chapter 3, we have the fiery furnace, where the three Hebrew children, actually 35 or 36 years of age, not children at all, are cast into the fiery furnace with the exhortation by Nebuchadnezzar, now let's see what your God can do. Well, he sees what the God of Israel can do, and God proves himself stronger than the God of Babylon. And after each one of these events, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims Jehovah the one true and living God. But despite his proclamations, he does not bow the knee to the one true and living God. He does not serve the one true and living God. And now we come to chapter 4. The year is 571 B.C. Daniel is now 49 years old. He's a middle-aged man. And once again, God reveals himself to Nebuchadnezzar in a very unusual way. And what makes chapter 4 particularly interesting is that chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now think about that. This is the inspired word of God. We always think of the word of God being written by prophets and apostles. But God inspires Nebuchadnezzar to write a section of the Bible. So look how it opens up. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. There's a sense in which chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's open letter to the people. Now, occasionally we'll open up the Dallas Morning News or you'll open up a, another newspaper and there'll be a whole page ad and it's actually an open letter that someone writes to all the readers of the Dallas Morning News. Oftentimes it is an open letter by Exxon saying that we're not so bad, we don't pollute the waters, or it's an open letter written by the executives of Philip Morris saying, 
Smoking isn't that bad, you know. We know some people die, and we encourage you not to smoke. But if you must smoke, smoke our brand. You know, you've seen those kinds of open letters. Well, this is an open letter written by Nebuchadnezzar. Notice the words all in verse 1, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is a letter that's going to have wide circulation. Now, since they didn't have newspapers, this was a letter that was written by Nebuchadnezzar and circulated by couriers throughout his entire empire. Now, look at the purpose of the letter. Verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. So this is going to be a letter about how God has revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar and how God has worked in behalf of Nebuchadnezzar. Here's his conclusion, verse 3. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom, this is Nebuchadnezzar's bottom line, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that God is the ultimate king and by doing so, he is admitting that he is not the ultimate king. His kingdom will come to an end. But God reigns for, from ever to ever. <clears throat> and now the remaining chapter, the remaining verses in this chapter, will explain how Nebuchadnezzar has come to this conclusion that God is the king of all kings and his reign is forever. So it all starts, the details start in verse 4. And it all starts with another dream that God gives Nebuchadnezzar. Look what it says. Now he's going to tell the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. Now the word flourishing means living the good life. I happened to be sitting back in my palace, just living the good life. I had everything that money could buy. I was living in the lap of luxury when suddenly something happened. Look what it is. Verse Five. I saw a dream. In other words, I wasn't expecting this. I was having a glass of wine, sitting back, had my feet up, had my servants waving the leaves, you know, so I could get some breeze on this hot summer day, just living the good life. And I saw a dream which made me afraid. In other words, it's another one of those nightmares that he had. Remember in chapter Two, he had a nightmare, and he couldn't get a good night's sleep after that. And that's what we have right here, another nightmare that hits Nebuchadnezzar. And look what he says. I saw the dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. In other words, when I put my head down at night, I couldn't get to sleep, and I tossed and turned all night thinking about this terrible vision, this terrible nightmare that I had, and I had a troubled soul. And he doesn't know exactly why he's troubled, but he's troubled. And then in verse 6, it's just because he has a dream, and the dream troubles him. 
And the reason is he doesn't know what it means, but it scares him. So look at verse 6. He said, Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, does that sound familiar? That's what he did on his first dream. Remember, back in chapter 2, it got all the Chaldeans, all the wise men say, hey, what does this mean? Look at verse 7. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them to dream. I said, now here's what it was all about. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. These guys are still impotent. I mean, at the beginning of his reign, they couldn't interpret a dream, and guess what? At the end of his reign, they couldn't interpret a dream. So, he turns to Daniel. Look at verse 8. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. That's the name I gave him when I brought him into captivity. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, now look at this title that Daniel has, chief of the magician, head wise man, because I know the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, that means no dream is that, that I saw secretly is too hard for you to interpret, Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. So he brings Daniel in last. Even though Daniel is the chief, he comes in last because the other guys fail. And the reason he finally turns to Daniel is he says because he knows that the Spirit of God dwells in Daniel. Isn't that amazing? Here's a political leader, knows he has a godly advisor, knows this guy's in touch with the one true and living God, but guess what he does? He turns to the other advisors first. Now that's very important that you realize that because we're going to draw a major lesson on that. Daniel is filled with the Spirit of God. Now, we come to the actual content of the dream. Look at verse 10. What's it all about? Listen. These were the visions of my head while on my bed I was looking and behold that means suddenly when I wasn't expecting it a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great the tree grew and became strong its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen all the ends of the earth its leaves were lovely its fruit abundant and in it was fruit for all one tree that could feed everybody sounds like some crazy dream doesn't it suddenly you know you've had those crazy dreams how scenes switch in your dreams and it's they don't make sense when you wake up and that was a crazy dream well here he sees a little tree and suddenly next time he looks it's up into the sky and there's enough food to feed everybody in this whole kingdom so it's one of those crazy dreams and it says this at the end of verse 12 and the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches and all flesh fed from it i saw in the visions 
of my head while on my bed. Now watch this phrase. And there was a watcher, a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. Now, watchers were angels. So when you see the word watcher, you need to sort of circle that or interpret that as an angel. An angel who never sleeps. That's why they're called watchers. They are God's sort of guards or guardians who never sleep. They're just like God who never slumbers nor sleeps. So he suddenly sees an angel or a watcher come down from heaven. Now look at verse 14. And he cried, the angel cried and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Now the King James says, Chop down the trunk and cut off his branches. Which is important because we're going to see that the tree represents a man. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it. Those animals that were under the tree, get them out of there. And the birds, get them off the branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth. So here we see that there's a tree, and this tree represents a man, and the tree is going to be cut down. And in his dream, he sees this tree that goes grows to heaven, and suddenly it's cut down, and the only thing left is like a stump in your yard. Now, since this tree represents a man, who do you think it represents? Yes, it represents the king. It represents Nebuchadnezzar. And he's the one who's going to be cut down to size. And notice who commands that he is cut down to size. The watcher. God is going to cut him down to size. Sometimes when we're cut down to size, we think other people have done us wrong. And oftentimes the government, there's a coup in the government. And one king is dethroned and another one comes to power. And we say, oh, it was a coup against the government. But in reality, it was God that cut that person down to size. It's God that overthrows government. And then look in verse 15. It says, leave the stump and the roots in the earth. And here's what you're to do. Bound with a band of iron and bronze. Put a band of iron or bronze around that trunk. In this case, it would be the king. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him, notice the tree becomes a him, let him graze with the beast on the grass of the earth. And so when the king is cut down to size, he's going to go from the palace to the pasture. And he's going to graze with the beast of the field. And then look at verse 16. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. And let him be given the heart of a beast. He's going to turn into a wild animal, this man, who had everything in control. The whole world was in his control, is suddenly going to be turned from a human-like person into a beast-like person, which simply means he's going to be like a wild beast. He's going to become insane, basically what it means. Now, how long will this last? Look what it says at the end of verse 
16. Let seven times pass over him. He's going to be insane and live like a beast for seven years. Seven years it's going to last. Now how certain are we of this interpretation? Look at verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the Holy Ones. That's how certain that he can be that this will happen. In fact, if you look over at verse 24, it says, This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. And so this is not just something that might happen. This is indeed going to happen. Aren't you glad that this, that you don't know what your future might be? This guy knows in advance what his future is going to be. Now at this point, he's just telling the story. And uh, we know that it's referring to him because in Daniel's interpretation, he's going to say that tree is you, King. Now what's the purpose of this dream? Well, let's watch. Look at the end of verse 17. It says this. All this is going to happen in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. That's the purpose of these events, is that those of us who are living on the earth might know that God rules in the kingdom of men. Of men. Now, verse 17, I believe, is the key verse in the entire Bible. I mean, in the entire book of Daniel. The key verse in the entire book of Daniel. It's repeated again, for example, in verse 25, at the end of verse 25. Look at that last sentence in the end of verse 25. Know that the Most High, do you see that? Rules in the kingdom of men. You see that same thing again repeated at the end of verse 32. It says, Know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. So that's the key verse of this chapter, and I believe it's the key verse of the book of Daniel. And this verse, that God rules in the kingdoms of men, is the theme of the book. That's the one thing that the writer wants you to know, is that God rules in the kingdom of men, and to and to drive that point home, he's going to take seven years out of a person's life to prove that point that he rules in the kingdoms of men. So here's a man who's going to have to pay a price in order for us to learn a lesson, in order for him to learn a lesson, and in order for us to learn a lesson. Now there's three points, I believe, that we must grasp. And point number one is that from this whole dream is that God is the sovereign of the universe. That God is the ruler of the universe. Now I want you to notice where he rules in verse 17. We just read that verse. It says he rules where? Verse 17. In the kingdom of men. Now Nebuchadnezzar knew he ruled, but guess what? He thought God ruled up there. And if you say, where does God rule? You say, oh, God rules up there. God's kingdom's up there. But that's not what this message says. Where does God rule? He rules down here in the kingdom of men. He rules in Dallas. 
He rules in Baghdad. He rules in Russia. He rules in Palestine. He rules in Afghanistan. He rules in Pakistan. He rules in government. And that's hard to believe. But that's what you need to understand. He rules now. He rules now and he rules here. But I don't see his rule. Well, he's the one that could lead could lead you and lead me into bankruptcy. He rules our lives whether we realize it or not. He's the one that puts us flat on our back. And oftentimes forces us then to look like you're not in charge. See, when you get on your back, suddenly you realize you're not in charge, don't you? You can be a president of a corporation, but on your back, guess what? You're helpless. You discover that you don't rule anything. You think you rule your life, but you don't rule anything. God rules, and he does these things to get our attention so that we will yield and we will submit to his rulership. Now, notice also, another thing we need to grasp is that God not only rules in government, but he actually controls political leaders. Look in verse, at the end of verse 17. That God controls the political leaders. It says, after he rules in the government of men, look at this next statement. He gets whomever he will. He's the one that put Hitler in charge. And so I don't like that. Well, that's either didn't, I would say Daniel probably didn't like it that God put Nebuchadnezzar in charge either, did he? But who do you think put Nebuchadnezzar in charge? God did. And God's the one that can take Nebuchadnezzar out of power. And who is it that put Saddam Hussein in charge? God did. You want to say, oh, no, that was, Satan did that. Don't give Satan so much credit. Okay? Who put Bill Clinton in charge? Somebody said Hillary. <laughs> See, we can believe that God puts a good president in charge, but not a bad president in charge. But he puts the bad, bad people in charge, too. Because that verse doesn't have any qualification. It says, he gives it to whomever he will. And he does it for a purpose. He does it to accomplish his goal. And then look at the very last sentence in verse 17. The third thing you need to realize is that he exalts the humble. Look what it says. He sets over it, over the government, the lowest of men. Now that could mean the lowest morally, in which case we could say even the Saddam Hussein. But probably what this is talking about is that he he can put people who are lowly and humble in government, people who don't fight to be leaders, he can put there in charge of government. Daniel was a 15-year-old and became the chief advisor at the age of 15. He wasn't planning on that. Joseph wasn't planning on being the assistant to Pharaoh. He was just you know, one of the 12 sons. David was a shepherd boy. Samuel comes and says, I'm going to anoint you as the king of Israel. Me? I'm a shepherd boy. But God puts the lowly in charge of government. 
And I want you to know he still has humble people in Washington, D.C., advising kings and presidents and in Russia and different places. He has his people there now, and he has them there for a purpose. So that is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar reveals to Daniel. Now, what does it all mean? Okay, let's look at the interpretation of the dream. Look at verse 18. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now, you, Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare its interpretation. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, I know that. For the Spirit of God, of the Holy God, is in you. So here it comes. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. And his thoughts troubled him. He hears the dream, and some things flash in his mind, and he goes, "Uh uh-oh. How do I break this news to the king? This is not, I don't think that this dream is what the king might think it is. I think this is bad news. And so he's literally dumbstruck. His breath is taken away from him when he gets even just the beginning glimpses of, of the vision. But look what it says. So the king spoke, right in verse 19, right in the middle. And so the king spoke, and he says, he said, Belteshazzar! Do not let this dream or its interpretation trouble you. Come on, give it to me straight. I'm a man. I can take this news. What's it mean? Well, look what it says. The Belteshazzar answered and he said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you. And its interpretation concern your enemies. I hope that what I'm seeing doesn't refer to you now. I hope that what I see and what I think this dream means really refers to your enemies. But as he begins to speak, and God gives him the interpretation, unfortunately, it doesn't refer to Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. It refers to him. Look at verse 20. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. That tree, look at this. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. So, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. And his influence and his kingdom have reached the entire world. Verse 23. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher. Now remember, king, you told me about a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, of that part. That is the decree 
of the Most High, which is come upon my Lord, the King, they shall drive you from men. Now notice the word they, that refers to the watchers. The angels are going, from God, are going to drive Nebuchadnezzar, it says, away from men. That means he's going to be isolated. That means he's going to be cut off. He's going to lose all association. He's going to live in his own little world. He's not going to have anybody around him who attends to him. Look what else it says in verse 25. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. You're going to sleep in a stall, and you're going to eat hay. Now, I don't know if that's the Atkins diet or what kind of diet, but he's going to be on some diet that he's not used to. And then look what it says. They shall wet you. Now, this is still talking about the, the angels, the watchers. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. This is what God's going to do to you until you learn that lesson. This is God's rehabilitation program right here. This is what God might have to do to one of us in order to grab our attention and to make us realize that we don't rule our own lives, he rules. And that's what he's going to have to do to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 26. Inasmuch as they, that's the watchers, gave the command to leave the stump and the root of the trees, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that what? Heaven rules. You're not going to be out in the field forever, but you are sentenced to seven years, and this is going to happen, but you will get your kingdom back once you learn your lesson. Now look at this exhortation that Daniel gives in verse 27. Therefore, in light of everything that I've said, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Here's my advice. Break off your sins by being righteous. Break off your iniquities by showing Mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, what David Daniel is saying is, look, I see the interpretation, but I want to give you some advice. Maybe if you break off your sins right now and you start helping the poor, stop thinking of yourself, stop living in the lap of luxury, stop flourishing in your past, in your castle, possibly this won't happen. Possibly you won't have to go through all this. And notice what he says there, because the advice is very interesting. It includes specific instructions. Break off your sins. And notice this, by. You see that word, by. How do you do it? By being righteous. And then, break off your iniquity. Well, how do you do that? By showing mercy. There is a negative instruction and a positive instruction. Break off your sins. That's the negative, positive by being righteous. 
Break off your iniquity. That's what you're not to do. Don't sin. How? By showing mercy to the poor. That's the positive. So there are positive instructions and there are negative instructions. And the way you break off a bad habit or break away from sin is by replacing it with something positive. A lot of people try to change their lifestyle, try to change their turn over a new leaf, and they go right back to it because they never replace it with something positive. And so that's what he tells you to do. Break off and change. That's called repentance. That means making an about faith. And so I think from verse 27, we really get an insight into Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and how he ruled his kingdom. I would say that he built a great kingdom. In fact, I think that that's been established. He built an unbelievable kingdom, and it was a great kingdom. But he didn't rule it in righteousness. He allowed things to happen in it that weren't right. And he didn't take care of the poor. Now, isn't it interesting that this is a secular government? This isn't Christian America that he's talking about. This is some pagan government. And God says to the pagan government, guess what? Take care of the poor. Rule in righteousness. See, God is concerned about all the governments of the world. He's not only concerned about America, and he has certain instructions, certain things that you need to do. Now, I believe that if Nebuchadnezzar's government was judged by man, they would have judged it a rousing success. But by God's estimation, guess what? It's a rousing failure. And so these are the instructions that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar. Think about all those implications. Now look at verse 28. Verse 28. All this came to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at that. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now I want you to notice that this is what we're going to call the fulfillment of the dream. It all happened. Verse 28 is a summary statement. So every detail happened. It all came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now notice it changes from first person to third person. Now we don't see Nebuchadnezzar saying, and I, 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 I. Now look what it goes. Talking about third person. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is either someone else speaking or Nebuchadnezzar is speaking in the third person. Remember how Bob Dole was when he used to, when he ran for president? He says, Bob Dole doesn't do this. And Bob, instead of just saying, I don't do this. He said, Bob Dole doesn't do this. Remember when he used to do that? And I think it could be Nebuchadnezzar talking in the third person because when the things happen to him, it's like he can't believe it's happening to him. It's like it's happening to somebody else. It's so surreal and everything. You know, it's, it's like uh, it was a nightmare and he's gone through it. And he just, when he looks back on it now, as he writes this, he can't even think about it. And maybe he's talking in the third person. But it did happen, and it happened to the most powerful man in the world. Look at verse 29. This is an absolutely amazing passage right here. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Now notice, after the vision, after the interpretation, 12 months later, it still hasn't happened. He's just walking amongst the palace, it says. And look what it says in verse 30. The king spoke saying, It's not this great Babylon. Oh, this is a wonderful place. Look at all that I've done. 
Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty? He's admiring his accomplishments. Obviously, he didn't take Daniel's advice in verse 27, did he? He's still doing the same old, same old one year later after the vision. And he's saying, look what I did. Look at the... Look at the you know hanging gardens. It's unbelievable. Oh, this is the oh, there's never been anything like it. Here's my statue. It's still there. Look at it. Pretty nice looking statue. Biggest skyscraper in the world. Maybe even the Tower of Babel was still there. The aqueduct. All these things. He's admiring it. Most beautiful city in the world. And then look at verse 31. And while the word was still in the king's mouth. Look at this. Look at those hanging guards. Aren't they beautiful? While they were still coming out of his mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Look at that. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will that very hour while he was yet speaking the word was fulfilled concerning nebuchadnezzar he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen in a split second everything in his life changes and his mental faculties cease functioning and suddenly he becomes like an irrational animal as he's saying isn't the isn't he aren't these hanging gardens so beautiful just like that that's what the writer wants us to see Everything changes. See, we read it and just like, oh, yeah. No. It was probably even worse than that. <laughs> now look at what else it says at the end of verse 33, right in the middle. This is a great statement. His body was wet with the dew from heaven till his hair was grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Sounds like billionaire Howard Hughes right before he died, doesn't it? Exactly the same thing. This is how quickly God can literally reduce us to nothing. From brilliance to dementia. Just like that. Speaking one moment, not even knowing what you were saying. The moment after. From the pinnacle of power, literally right to us, to the pasture where he becomes like a prowling beast. And I imagine this guy was a great orator, and suddenly now all he can do is grunt. And that all happens at once. Now, you don't think that can happen? Just think of Sodom. What did he look like? Did he look something like that? When we found him in that, ho- when we found him in that hole? Remember what his hair looked like? That's what God can do. We say, oh, America did that. I say God did that. same exact thing 
You know, there are certain words that uh, describe people who are transformed suddenly into animal-like creatures. One word is zoanthropy. And it's when a person begins to act like an animal. The most common form of zoanthropy is uh, lycanthropy. And that's when a person begins to take on the appearance and begins to act like a wolf. There's a movie a few years ago about, a, 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 I think, an editor of a newspaper or editor of a publishing business who became a wolf. And uh, the whole thing centers around that. And then there's boanthropy. That's when a person acts like an ox. Now, this really happens. And subconsciously, or not even subconsciously, but inside, they know what's going on. They're still thinking partially like a human, but they act like a bovine. And it's like they're trapped in their body and they can't get out. And so this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And since Daniel's the only one that understands what's going on here, because I doubt the king told anybody, <laughs> Daniel probably takes over the government for those seven years and runs it until Nebuchadnezzar's back on his feet. And I believe that Daniel makes sure the king's protected while he's out in the field. And I believe that Daniel makes sure that the king gets his supply of oats and hay every day for, for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Now look at uh, verse 34. <clears throat> Suddenly we go back to the first person. <clears throat> it says this. And at the end of the time, in other words, seven years later, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And suddenly he learned his lesson that there's a God who rules over everything. And immediately there are four changes that take place in his life. First, there's a psychological change. He said, and my understanding returned to me. He suddenly became rational again. There's a spiritual change. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. So he begins to begin to praise the Lord. He's totally changed. I believe it's a conversion. And then he learns several lessons. It says, all the inhabitants of the earth, in verse 35, are reputed as nothing. That's the first lesson that I realized. We're nothing. He's everything. See? Second lesson. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. Notice God has an army. It's God's army that overthrows country. And he does what he wants to do. God's in charge. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand. That's a good lesson to learn. If God is for you, who can be against you? But if God's against you, guess what? No one can be for you. You can't restrain his hand. And no one can say to him, what have you done? We have no right to question what God does. The pot cannot say to the potter, why have you made me this way? God is not accountable to anyone. These are the four lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned. And then finally, he was restored to power. It says, and at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and my splendor, returned to me. In other words, I got back my dignity. At the same time, my reason returned. And for the glory of my kingdom, 
my honor and my splendor returned to me. I got back my dignity. I got on my two feet, got dressed again. My counselors and my nobles resorted to me. In other words, they didn't just say, oh, he's out in the barn. They begin to come to him. And I was restored to my kingdom, and the excellent majesty was added to me. I regained my kingship, is basically what he is saying. And I imagine that those seven years when he was out in the field, it was like a time warp. But it happened. And then look at verse 37. And now I, here's his bottom line, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, all of whose works are truth, and his ways are justice, or right. And what happened to me is what I deserved. I got justice, but I want you to know I've been rehabilitated and I learned my lesson. And I believe he's converted because these are very active verbs. He says uh, that uh, he, you know, he honored the Lord, he extolled the Lord, he praised the Lord. That means continuously. And this seems to be the characteristics of a real believer. And then look at right at the end of verse 37. He says this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Now, that's the end of chapter 4, and that's the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, because his reign comes to an end. Daniel's about 56 years old at the end of the seven years, and his reign comes to the end, and a guy by the name of Belshazzar takes over. Now, let me just give you a couple observations, and we're going to close out. We had a lot of lessons here. We don't need to go into lessons again. So let me make just two or three observations. Number one, it amazes me that when leaders... When leaders seek counsel, even though they know they have a godly counselor on their staff, will first turn to the ungodly counselor. Isn't that amazing that he did that? Now, that's true with President Bush as well. Don't think Bush is turning to all godly counselors. That's not happening. He's got, there's God's counselors on his staff, and there are Satan's counselors on his staff. And Satan's counselors can scream and talk just as loud as God's counselors. And so he's going to be listening to both, and that's one of the reasons we need to be praying for him. Because he's going to get a lot of bad advice, a lot of bad counsel. But God has his men there and his women there, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they have the mind of God, and we need to pray that God will lead them and give them the opportunity to step forth and give counsel to our president and even the leaders of the world. Now, one other thing I observed is that here we see that God is a God of grace. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? He had 12 months to repent, and he still didn't do it. But God always gives us a period of grace to repent before he puts us on our back. And you know, and you need to always say, where am I in this whole scenario? I mean, am I in this period where I should, where God should be knocking me down, and I know it, because I've been ruling my own life? Or maybe something is going on in your life. Maybe you are can't sleep at night. You're troubled like this guy was. Or maybe you know, you're know you on your back. God's trying to say something to you. What's he saying to you? It's an opportunity right now to come to your senses, just like Nebuchadnezzar, and turn your life totally over to him, surrender your will to his will. And uh, the last observation, we really don't need to go into this much, but it's simply 
that right belief in God is not enough. Chapter 1, he said God was God. Chapter 2, he said Jehovah was God. Chapter 3, he said Jehovah was God. But guess what? Wasn't enough. Right belief has to be accompanied by right living. So he's told to turn from his sin and do what is right. And so, friends, how can we say we love God? How can we hold to that belief? How can we say we love God who we can't see when we don't love our neighbor who we do see? And that's why it's important that Christianity have some sort of social aspect connected with its evangelism. Not saying that that's the most important thing, but friends, we can't live in our ivory towers and in our little palaces flourishing while people out there are hurting. We need to be out there doing something. And this morning, the pastor said, hey, would you be willing to take somebody to a movie to see The Passion? A few weeks ago, he said, would you be willing to go into the neighborhood over in South Dallas, help us with a block party, friends? That's exactly what we need to do, and that's the lesson of Daniel chapter 4. We'll pick up with chapter 5 next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us not only to be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers as well. In Jesus' name, amen.